this is the last series of the family uh, services that we've had in the season. So next week, all those kids will be back upstairs. But we have, have the privilege of having the, the kids and kids with us in service today. And I thought it might be neat for them to help me out with a little part of the message. Uh, the service, our, our message title today is called A Certain Sound. And I think after they play and after I talk a little bit, you'll figure out how they fit into that. But they're going to help us out. And Pastor Jeff has a secret ambition that he's told several people. It's not really a secret when he starts talking. But he has uh, informed me that he has this desire to be on the frontline worship team for Mark Mackin. And also to conduct the choir at some point when Mark and John are on vacation. So uh, I thought with it being the first of the year, we try a lot of new things in the first of the year. Uh, I think it might be pretty neat while Pastor Ron's out of town to give him his chance. He's had about five minutes with these kids to train them on the trumpet and the song that they're going to do. So I want to set the expectation bar at the right level for you. But let's give a warm welcome to our kids pastor, Pastor Jeff Mead and the Kids Inc. team. Let's give them a hand. Great job, kids. Y'all can go back to your parents, Pastor Jeff. It'll be a while till you get that opportunity again. But hey, uh, parents, you can thank me later. I have a gift that your kids are taking with them, these horns. They don't require batteries. They don't require assembly, but they are noisemakers. They are. Well, a few years ago... Well, it's been several years now. I had the opportunity to share on the first Sunday of the year. And uh, many of you may remember that, those of you who go back those, those years. And you remember I talked about my home elliptical that I was shopping for. You know, I had done my research and I was ready to buy one in the new year. And I'd shopped the circulars. I'd gone to the stores. I had done research on consumer reports. And I wanted to make sure I had an industrial, heavy-duty, steel-grade elliptical. And I'm pleased to report after all these years that my elliptical is in almost perfect mint condition. All right, I have uh, something to confess to you guys. I'm about average when it comes to New Year's resolutions. How about you? But there's something about the start of a new year where you want to take the time and think about the last year and what worked and what didn't work and what you didn't accomplish in 2011. And you want to move into the new year and you want things to be different. How many of you have taken some time over this last week and reflected on the year and maybe made a list or had a mental list at least of some resolutions that you wanted to accomplish in 2012? Anybody? Oh, man, there's probably 50 or 60% of the, of the congregation here. 
Well, the reality is that most resolutions, even for the most resolute, last about 18 days. So you're in good standing. The first day, you probably haven't had a chance yet to even break those resolutions that you started. But it is a time of the year where we consider changes in our life. And this morning, as I'm looking at a scripture and trying to apply this idea of a certain sound, I'm convinced that God has a certain sound, a certain purpose in your life that can be lived out if you're yielded and obedient to him in 2012. And it may not look anything like the resolutions that you put down on paper, but it's extremely important. It's going to be extremely important to you as a person, to your family, and to this church that you make that certain sound. And I'm convinced uh, as we look at that, that there's a metaphor that we can use about that certain sound. Now, Paul, in the book of Corinthians, writes about a certain sound that the trumpet makes. And you notice that we started with those vuvuzelas. I'm going to be using my trumpet as an illustration. But I want to look at a passage of Scripture. The Corinthian church was having some issues in their church, and they are wanting to just clarify the gifts of the Spirit and the operation of the, of the gifts of the Spirit in the service. And I just want to take the concept of the metaphor that he used in there and apply it to an Old Testament passage that we all know very, very well. But let's look at those verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in verses 7 and 8. He's talking about things that make sounds. And it says, Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? And this is the part I really want to focus on. It's really the, the slogan or the, or the catchphrase of the service today. For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle. I started playing the trumpet in the fifth grade. Now, I don't know how many of you have played a brass instrument, but you probably had a, a relative in your home who's played a brass instrument or a woodwind instrument. And I have to admit, those first few weeks of learning a brass instrument, most of my family didn't want to be in the house with me when I was playing. It, my, my sister talked about the sound sounding like a cow that was dying. Uh, the, the cat went into hiding when I was playing, and even today when I play in the home, my dog starts howling at me when I play the trumpet. Well, my dad was a pastor in, in rural Louisiana, and after about six weeks of refining my craft, my dad thought I was ready for prime time. So he scheduled me for an offertory six weeks after I started playing the trumpet. You're way ahead of me on this. The day came, he blessed the offering, my mom played the piano, she did the introduction, and I got about halfway through Amazing Grace, the first verse, and it sounded so bad to me, the person who was playing it, that I got so frustrated, I took my mouthpiece out, I put my trumpet back in its case in front of everyone, and I went and sat on the front row while the offering was still being passed, to which my dad came back to the podium and invited me to come back to finish the song. After several weeks of therapy, <laughs> I'm kidding about that, but after several more weeks of playing, the struggle that I had of locking into a pitch, of setting a volume, of having a certain tone started improving. And over time, I had the opportunity to do a lot with the trumpet, and, and I still play recreationally, nothing like what I used to do. But it's ironic to me 
that when we're talking about a certain sound and we're applying it to our life, that too many people in our culture and even in the church aren't as concerned about refining the sound that God has given them. You see, I think God has given you a purpose, and he's given me a purpose that we should refine over our lifetime. And every year there should be an opportunity for us to look forward and look back and see those changes that God has brought in our life. It's important that we're sounding a certain sound. As I think about that and I, I, I think about the different passages in the scriptures, for thousands of years, trumpets and ram's horns have been used to really convey uh, a battle cry, to rally troops, to make announcements, uh, to announce royalty. But there's a certain passage that I think is probably the most famous passage in the Old Testament that deals with the ram's horns that were used. And it was probably the largest grouping of ram's horns that I found as I looked through Scripture and, it, and it's dangerous for me to go to this account because any of you who've grown up in church, whether you've only been a few years or you've been in church your whole lifetime, this is a story that you know like the back of your hand. And the problem I have in, in going into this message is that, is that you already know what the characters are going to do in this story before I tell you the story. You have an optimism bias that will block you, if you're not careful and you don't listen to me today, will block you from feeling and sensing what the people in the story were doing in the moment without knowing what the outcome was going to be. And that story, if you haven't figured it out already, is Gideon and his brave 300 men. So I've taken a passage of Scripture. It's a rather lengthy passage of Scripture. I'm going to summarize some at the beginning, and I'm going to pull three points that are going to be uh, pitfalls to the certain sound that God has called you to in 2012. So let's turn to Judges chapter 7. We're looking at verses 1 through 22. We're going to talk a little bit about what was going on in Israel at the time. And then we're going to move into God calling Gideon and what happens in the process of God calling Gideon and how that army masses and what God does in that. So there's a roadmap of where we're going today. And in the midst of that, we'll share a few more stories of my journeys along the way playing the trumpet. Well, as we step into Judges... We recognize that Joshua and the Israelites, several decades before the, the period of the Judges, has moved the people into the Promised Land. They've been able to capture and, and take over a large portion of the land, but they weren't successful in totally accomplishing a complete takeover of the area that God had promised. The problem is that as time goes on, and a verse in Judges chapter 2 really tells us what starts happening, as time goes on, the people who knew what God had done who had experienced the victory that Joshua and that generation had experienced, started dying off. And in Judges chapter 2, it says, After a while, the people of Joshua's generation died, and the next generation did not know the Lord or the things that he had done for Israel. Those are telling words that could be applied to almost any generation, whether it be in the church or any period of history. When a generation dies off and that sound is not carried on to that next generation, you run into the possibility that the whole history of what has been accomplished is undone. And that's what starts happening in the book of Judges. Over and over again, the people forget who God is, and they forget how powerful God is, and they don't turn to Him. They turn to the local gods that are around, like Baal and the Asherah poles. And we find ourselves in Gideon's story about halfway through the book of Judges, 
and the, and the Israelites have fallen back into a cycle of sin, and they're in bondage, and they're in bondage to a people group called the Midianites. Now, the Midianites were a nomadic people who lived on the east side of Jordan. And what they would do, uh, they had enough numbers and strength that they basically hovered and moved wherever there were fertile land and crops that they could take. And so for seven years before Gideon is called, the Midianites have been crossing the Jordan River over into northern Israel, and they have been wreaking havoc on the crops, on the livestock, and anything that was a commodity that they could use on themselves. The Midianites are stripping the land bare. And the Israelites seem powerless to do anything about it. In fact, when we see that Gideon is called, he's just like many of the other Israelites. The Israelites get to the point where when the Midianites show up and they start taking over the fertile valley areas and they start taking over the crops that are coming to harvest, they would start hiding in caves and up in mountainous areas just to stay alive. And after seven years, they had gotten to the point where they were just about to starve because of the amount of stuff that they had lost over the seven years that couldn't be replaced within a year. And we find Gideon being called of God, hiding out in a wine press, shifting through some wheat that he had harvested. What's encouraging to me when I see where Gideon is called is that God calls some of the most common people to do some of the most uncommon things in Scripture and in your lifetime and in mine. And here's the premise that I have for you today. Sometimes I think people think that only a certain number of people have some divine purpose for their life, some divine sound that they're going to make, some divine change that they're going to make that's going to revolutionize the world. But I'm convinced the longer I live and the longer I watch God touch someone on the shoulder and call them to a, a new level of leadership, I'm convinced that he calls common people like you and me, and every one of us have a divine destiny for 2012 and for our life. The question often becomes is how obedient are we going to be when God calls us to that uncommon thing that he wants us to accomplish? Well, Gideon's just like you and me. He didn't think he was up for the battle. He didn't think he was up for the charge. God calls him the mighty man of valor, and he's hiding in a wine press, and he's from one of the smaller clans of the tribe of Manasseh. And he thinks nothing good could come from him that would amount to anything. So he goes through those testing with the fleece, and God confirms that he's the one that's going to lead the change, the repentance. He goes into his hometown. He tears down all the Asherah poles and all the Baal idols that are there. And they end up wanting to kill him. They go to his dad and they say, who's this guy? Your son is the one who tore down all this stuff. We want to kill him. To which his dad says, let Baal deal with him. And he gets a nickname as a result of being brazen enough to do that. But the Spirit of the Lord moves on him again a second time. And the second time, the Spirit of the Lord moves on him to take his ram's horn and start sounding a military call for all the northern tribes of Israel to respond. So Gideon starts doing that, and he seems to be very effective. He first starts with his clan, and they start gathering, and then the rest of Manasseh start responding. And by the time he finishes sending his messengers and sounding his ram's horn, 32,000 guys have shown up to hear what his plan is to overthrow these Midianites. That may sound like a, a, a great number, but when you take into account the number of Midianites 
that the Bible records that are in the Jezreel Valley, just four miles away from where his troops have amassed, there are 132,000 Midianites just four miles from where he's amassed his army. And it's interesting to me that these guys would have been checking this out and knowing, and it looks like to me that the Midianite leaders, even though they would have heard the trumpet sounds and they would have seen the people migrating to this location, they didn't really take the Israelites as even a serious threat, even with 32,000 soldiers showing up. So we can see that there was a long way to go before Israel was really going to be able to put a dent in that and overthrow the Midianite control that was in the area. The Bible describes the Midianites as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camel that were too numerous to count. And they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Gideon has this group. He sounded the trumpet, and they have some soul-searching to do because the odds of them winning the battle right now are a little more than four to one. So I'm sure these clansmen and these other tribes are sitting there and wondering what plan Gideon's going to come up with that is going to be able to overthrow this Midianite power that's there. And that brings us to the first pitfall for the certain sound that God has for your life. The first thing that God addresses isn't a battle strategy. It isn't uh, some creative way that they were going to go about overthrowing the Midianites. The first thing that he addresses is the uncertain sound of pride. It's interesting in verse 2 of Judges 7, it says, The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me, and they'll say they saved themselves by their own strength. Too many people today are sounding a sound, but it's a sound that comes from their own reliance and pride. Two times in the scriptures there, in verse 4, the Lord again tells Gideon, after he's culled the list down and he's got even a smaller group of 10,000, he says, you still have too many. As I continued to play the trumpet, I had the opportunity to try out an audition at Oral Roberts University, and I became a trumpet performance major at Oral Roberts University and was offered some scholarships to go there. That's a sure way not to have a very long career if you're a trumpet performance major. Steer your kids away from that. But God brought a lot of opportunities my way, and as, as things developed, there was a, a season of time where I was selected, believe it or not, as the outstanding brass player at, at ORU, and they had an orchestra concert. And at the orchestra concert, they allowed me to pick a concerto that I wanted to play. And so I picked Vivaldi's trumpet concerto for two trumpets. It's a piccolo piece, and I, I had uh, another player from the Tulsa Philharmonic who played second trumpet with me. And we had practiced, and we had gotten uh, this very technical piece down, and it was sounding great. The night of the concert came, and we were uh, front and center. We were playing, and it was probably the best playing that I've ever done in my life. I mean, everything seemed effortless. All the notes were just flying off the page. It seemed like this was going to be this signature moment where I recognized just how great I was as a trumpet player. Well, Vivaldi's trumpet concerto and many concertos in, in classical music are often written in movements, sections of music. 
And how many of you have gone to a classical concert? Have any of y'all listened to some classical music? Well, it's traditional in a classical concert, if a, if a piece has three sections to it, and there's breaks between them, that you only clap at the very end of the concerto or, or the symphony or whatever it is you're listening to. You, you guys are following me on that. Remember that, because it's going to come back to be important here in just a moment. All right, so we played through the first movement. The second movement was a really short movement, and it didn't have any trumpet part in it. And in my exuberance of how great things were going, I went right into the third movement without leaving a break between the second and third movement. The lights were on us. We got to the end. It ended on a big fanfare. And all of a sudden, when I was expecting to hear the roar of applause, we were in a performance hall. The lights were down. The stage lights were on me. All we could hear, the other trumpet and I who were standing there waiting to bow, were about three people clapping their hands. And we wondered what had happened. We started looking around. I was wondering if, if my fly was down or, or, or something, something had messed up. And, and in, in the awkwardness, the other trumpet player went to grab the music stand, and the music stand fell apart and started clanging all over the wood floor. It wasn't until we left the stage in the backstage that we realized what had happened. The audience was still waiting for the third section of music that they thought they hadn't heard. As I sat there, embarrassed, kind of hurt that I didn't hear the applause, I realized just how susceptible I was to the applause of men. When you think about that in your own life, and you're thinking about the certain sound that God has for you, you need to evaluate today when you are striving for those goals that you have set for 2012. When you're looking at those resolutions, when you're looking at what God's may be calling you to do as your certain sound, you need to start in the same place that Gideon started with his men at God's direction. You start with the reality that anything good that's going to come is a result of the goodness of God and not some self-reliant thing that you're going to do on your own. What motivates and guides you in finding your perfect sound. We live in a world where people are, are honored and, and, and recognized and, and we make a big deal about people who are self-made and self-reliant. We have athletes that will continue to use a third person to describe themselves and their exploits on the basketball or, or, or football field. And we honor that and we celebrate that. And then we have someone come along like Tim Tebow who talks differently who doesn't engage in that kind of dialogue, and we wonder why it looks different. It's a certain sound that he's making. I'm not saying he's going to be the best football player ever. You've heard Pastor even mention him about him having a, a Tebow jersey. But it's interesting to me that his approach to interviews, his approach to who he talks about, his approach to where he gives honor, shows someone who understands the goodness of God and the opportunity that he's been given by God. So what motivates you for the certain sound that God's given you? Gideon has an opportunity then with 32,000 troops. He's given this task. God doesn't really describe to him exactly how many are going to leave. So I'm sure Gideon's thinking, I need to shrink the troops from 32,000 down to whatever number God wants. So I'm going to give my best pregame speech that I can. And then hopefully 
only a few guys will leave, and then I'll tell the ones that, that want to leave that are afraid they can leave, and, and I'll still have a good number to fight with. Well, Gideon gives his best pregame speech that he can give, and quickly, 22,000 men make a quick exit, and he's down to 10,000. And it's interesting to me that where he gave this speech is called the Springs of Harad, and Harad meant trembling. The second pitfall to the certain sound that God has for you in 2012 is the uncertain sound of silence. In verse 3 it says, Therefore tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. 22,000 men were effectively acknowledging that the Midianites were destroying their homeland, stealing everything they could from them, having their families live in caves, and they were admitting that they were willing to go home and continue life just as it was this year, just like it was last year. And they were, in effect, saying, this is too hard. We're not willing to face the fear and the reality of this battle that we're going into. My freshman year as a, a trumpet student at Oral Roberts University, uh, the Oral Roberts, uh, Richard Roberts had a, a Richard Roberts live show. Any of y'all ever watch it back in the day? It was on cable, it was uh, syndicated, it was played around the nation on different satellite channels, and my freshman year, I was just freshly into ORU, and they called the orchestra, and they had a piece they wanted the orchestra to, to play on the show, and they picked uh, a trumpet solo in the middle of, of the piece, and, and lo and behold, as a freshman, they gave the solo to me. Well, I called my parents, and I made sure that they knew all about the, the time of the show. We were going to get up early in the morning, and they taped the show live, 7 in the morning, and they would syndicate it and send it out without any editing, and and so I practiced all that afternoon into the evening, got up that morning. I felt like I was ready. We got in the studio. They did one run-through in the studio before they went live with the audience. And in the midst of the run-through, the cameramen and the technical guys realized that I had a trumpet solo. And so they moved a jib to where, and that's a, a camera with an arm with a guy on the arm. And, and they basically brought the jib and they dropped it right in front of me during the rehearsal. And that was going to be my my moment when I was playing the trumpet, I was going to be front and center on the screen, broadcast all over the United States. Well, I had told my parents, I had told my friends back in Alabama, it was going to be a big day, another one of those moments. Well, the recording started, and they started counting the music, the conductor was conducting, and somewhere in the midst, before we got to the trumpet solo, I lost count of the rest that I was counting. The music kept going, the choir was singing, orchestra was playing, the jib moved down, they had better timing than I did. They knew when I was supposed to play it, but it moved down, but I wasn't sure. And so that jib got a close-up of me on the camera as I held my trumpet and didn't play a note. One of the pitfalls in our life, if we're not careful, is to look at the troubles that we're having, to look at the... At the at the difficulties that we're facing, and to not engage. I think the people who accomplish much for God are people who have a bias for action. And that means that they're going to be willing to step out. They're not going to be in fear like the 22,000 who left. They're going to recognize the fear that they have, but they're going to recognize that they can push through that fear because God is directing them and God is on their side. 
the uncertain sound of silence. What's holding you back from your certain sound this year? Is it fear? Is it apathy? Are you just ready to let the year go like any other year? Are you ready to battle? We know our battle is not against flesh and blood. But often the battle ends in our own dialogue. All these men with Gideon faced the true reality that numbers were against him. But there were 10,000 that were willing to stay and see what God might do. As the passage continues, he takes the men to the stream and they have this weird test where God says, you still have too many with 10,000, so I'm going to bring you down to, to a smaller number. And he ends up with 300 men left after this test at the stream. And, and 300 men, that's 1% of his original army, are set now to face a group of 130,000 Midianites. They gather the provisions from the 10,000 or 9,700 they're leaving, and they come up with 300 ram's horns and 300 torches, and Gideon is devising a plan. Now, again, this is one of those times when it's unfortunate that we can't be on the front side of this story and not recognizing what God uh, was speaking to them and how they were responding, because we already know the outcome of this story. But I think the third pitfall that I would share this morning to the certain sound that God calls you to is the uncertain sound of confusion. Gideon said to them, keep your eyes on me. When I come to the edge of the camp, do as I do. As soon as I and those who are with me blow the ram's horns, blow your horns too all around the entire camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Now I want you to picture if you're one of the 300. You've been whittled down to 300, and Gideon's plan that he's presented to you and that he wants you to do, he wants you to get in a group of 100 to get on a ridge around the valley where 130,000 Midianites are. Around midnight, he's going to sound a trumpet, and then your group's going to sound a trumpet, and you're going to wake up 130,000 Midianites with 300 guys ready to battle. How many of you would sign up for that assignment? But God was up to something, and God stirred the people and created a scenario where they were successful in overthrowing the situation there and overthrowing the Midianites. It's interesting, the Hebrew verb in verse 8, where it talks about the 300 men who were left, it says he kept the 300 men, and that kept is a verb tense that means to take fast hold of, like when Pharaoh kept the Israelites from leaving slavery. There's a sense that there may have been some guys there that weren't necessarily ready even to step into those uh, assignments that they've been given as the 300. But it's interesting, and this is the last point that I'm going to make from my personal story. One year in college, I had the opportunity of, of playing in a concert where there were a lot of groups playing on the stage and we had the opportunity as, as trumpet players to play with different groups and so we had a trumpet choir, an orchestra, we had uh, a vocal choir that we played with from time to time, we even had a bell choir that night that we were playing with and all the instruments and everybody was spread across the stage and I was playing with three or four groups that night and so before the concert began I figured out the order of the groups that were going to take place that night but I failed to pay attention to the order of the songs within each of the groups. 
So as the night unfolded, I played with one group, I played with another, and then I finally got over to the orchestra, and I thought the orchestra was the next thing to play, and I thought we were playing a handle piece, and I had my trumpet ready, and it started on high A, and Dr. Epperly was conducting the group, and he looked over our way, and he gave a downbeat, and I was the only one who made any sound, and I blasted a high A. And then I looked around, and I realized that he was conducting the choir behind me that was singing an a cappella number. Well, Dr. Epperly had a personality where he was a pretty intense guy, and he slammed down the music stand. This is in front of a concert of people. And he looked at me, and he pointed at me, and he said, You're playing the wrong song, Barry. And I wanted to crawl under my seat, and I wanted to leave as quick as I could, but I was stuck, and I had to sit there and endure everyone knowing that Barry was the one. If they hadn't already figured out that I played that high note, they knew then. There are a lot of people, as they're considering the certain sound that God has given them for their life, who are playing the wrong song, and they're confused about what even is important in their life. So this morning, my final question for you as you think about 2012, you think about where God is leading you and what God may be calling you to, is what confusion keeps you from the certain sound that God has for you? What do you need to change? What do you need to give up? What do you need to let go of in 2012? To clearly discern what God really wants you to do with your life. When you find someone who's dealt with their own pride and self-reliance. Who's willing to take a bias toward action when God speaks. And who's not confused in chasing the wrong dreams. That's a person that God can use. And God can use you in a powerful way in your family and in your community and in your church with the certain sound that he's called you to. I want to invite our team to come up. But in these next few moments as we close out the service, I just want you to take a a, a fresh approach to what God may be speaking to you. Some of you have already had a time of reflection. The first of the year, the end of the year, is a great time to take a spiritual inventory of where you are with God. It's a great time to, to, to make sure that you are, uh, you're taking those steps and that you're, you're, you're making sure you have clarity in the things that you need to have clarity for as you move into the new year. Because if you don't, this opportunity for a new beginning will just be like any other day. And you'll end up living your life the same as you did last year and the same as you did the year before when God has a divine purpose and something far beyond what you could even imagine if you yield to him and you respond to him. Let's pray this morning. Lord, I thank you for your message. I thank you that you have given me some words to share this morning. I pray that even in the midst of my delivery, God, that something has sparked in our hearts. Something has caused us to enliven ourselves, to consider the purpose and plan that you have for our lives. Lord, I pray in these next few moments as we reflect on our own lives, as we reflect on 
on what you want to do with us, God. I pray that your presence will rest heavy on us, that you'll speak to people, that you'll respond to people who are asking for direction from you, God. Many people have gone through this last year, and they're looking for a fresh start, God, and I know you're the God of new beginnings. And God, I thank you today that we can believe that a new beginning can even begin on the first day of the year in 2012. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy. In Jesus' name. In just a moment, we'll be dismissed, but I want to give an opportunity for anyone who may be at a point in their life where they need God's direction in that certain sound. Maybe you've come in today and you're looking for a new start in your life. You haven't been in church and you're hearing me talk about God having this divine purpose and you, you don't even know what I'm talking about. You feel like you're silent in that area, that you've been chasing your own dreams and things like that. I want to give you an opportunity in just a moment as we close the service. I'm going to remain up in the, in the altar here. I want the opportunity just to talk to you, to encourage you, to pray with you. There'll be some other pastors that'll be around here. and We want that opportunity to do that as well. We want you to be able to start this year renewed with a renewed sense of what God wants to do in your life if you already know him. But we also want you to experience who God is if you've never had that experience to accept him. So in a moment here after I pray, I'll remain down in the altar. I'll be here for anybody that would like prayer. But I encourage you as you go from here today that you consider what God's sound is for your life. He has a certain sound for you. And when you deal with those issues and those pitfalls, it'll become clear what God wants you to do. And you're going to accomplish more than you'll ever dream in this year. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and your grace. I pray you go with us as we start this year. Thank you for a new year. Thank you for new beginnings. I thank you that your presence goes with us and you'll continue to minister this word even as we go forth through this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy New Year, everybody.